You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 97 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm very, very well today, Valerie. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah? Good. Very, actually, very good. Why um, Yes. Well, I think because I've kind of popped out the top of a pile of editing. I've just oh. I've managed to like wade my way through the words, swimming upwards yes. in ever-growing circles, and I've finally popped my head out the top and I've finished the edit and I've got my manuscript ready and sent it off to my little beta readers. Mm. Beta readers? Is it beta or beta, Val? You tell me. Well, like, it just depends on Would what Would you say country? beta? Um, Alpha, well, beta. 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 Let's say, let's say beta. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, it's gone off to them. And uh, now I'm awaiting their feedback while I am going about ready to dive back into another edit of a second manuscript. So, you know, I'm, I'm in a good place right now. What about well, you? Well done. Well, I sort of started off in a good place because I was, write, I was um, working on a major project, a writing project, and it was going at a decent pace. But, of course, I made the mistake instead of just ploughing through that and finishing it, it to the end, I started a new project, didn't I? Oh, Valerie! I know. So, Talk which which started this. going on, started going at a good pace as well. But now I've got two unfinished projects, and really, I should just knuckle down and see one to completion before you know. Instead of dividing my time, so bad me at the moment. Now, if so, if I was a a listener and I was to send you in a question, a Q and A that said, Valerie, mm-hmm. I have two major projects and I am struggling to get to the end of one of them. <laughs> What should I do? You would say prioritise, would you not? Yes, I would. And that's what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to prioritise the one particular major project and not touch the other until I finish because you know what this is depriving me of? What's that now? My banoffee pie because Uh... I can't have it until I finish at least one of them. (laughs) So that is what is driving me. So I am going to definitely this week prioritise because I'm hanging. Valerie Koo, powered by Banoffee Pie. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But anyway, um, we want to give a shout-out to Steph from the UK. Um, Hello, Steph. Hi, Steph. We should say g'day. Yeah, g'day. Steph might be Australian from the UK, but uh, she has left a five-star review on iTunes and Steph has kindly said, I only started writing recently and I'm so glad that I found this amazing podcast. Not only is it fun to listen to, but it also answers a lot of questions I wouldn't even think of asking. You you two keep me company while I sit alone at home on my keyboard and encourage me to keep writing when I feel lost. Thank you. You two are wonderful. 
Oh, oh that's nice. That's wow. giving me a little boost for the week. Thank I you so reckon. Much, Thank you that's so lovely. much, Steph. Yeah, really appreciate it. Um, and if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. And in fact, you may have noticed that this is episode 97, which 97. means... Yeah, I know. Can you believe it? We are becoming a grand old age, aren't we? Yes. But that means that a big milestone is coming up. Mm. Our hundredth episode is not far away at all. So what we want to do to celebrate our hundredth episode is you can win a $100 voucher to use on courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. And all you have to do is leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And the one that tickles our fancy the most between now and episode 100, will win. So oh, after episode 100, so. we will announce the winner of the $100 voucher. Mm. 100 so. episodes. Do you think we'll get like a telegram from the Queen or something? <laughs> that would be no. so fun. I hope we get some emails or something. I'm not sure. Just something. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, people send us something, please. <laughs> um, what has been happening in the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week, Al? Well, I've got to say that in my world of writing and blogging yes. and publishing, it's been a very exciting week because yes. um, so I got an email last week randomly out of the blue to let me know that Prisoner of the Black Hawk, which mm. is book two in the Mapmaker Chronicle series, has been shortlisted for a 2015 Aurealis Award <gasps> in Best Children's Fiction. Oh my god! That's I know. Amazing. Like I was, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I didn't even know I'd been nominated. So this email sort of turns up, and I was, you know, doing a small happy dance, Procrastinating yes. Pop and I just dancing around the study. <laughs> um, this is the bad thing about working by yourself. Like you have these big moments, and it's like, who can I tell? Yeah. The dog. <laughs> Not that, not that he's not an awesome, you know, audience member yes. and su- very supportive, but still. Um, yeah, so the Aurealis Awards um, have been around for about 20 years. Yeah, they're, and they, they're major. Yeah, they well, you know, I didn't even really realise how major it was until I started telling people and then mm. they, everyone was extremely excited for me. So, mm. um, But they were established by the publishers of Aurealis magazine to recognise the achievements of Australian science fiction, fantasy and horror writers. Yes. So there you go. I'm There I am. And Amazing. it's really exciting. And for it to be for book two as well is, yes. um, is I just feel really thrilled because I, I think we've talked about this before, but um, I've often talked about the middle of something being the most difficult part of a story to write yeah. um, from my perspective. I feel like you get a really good rush on in the first. Mm. You kind of know what's going, you know, where you're going. So the third is exciting as well, the last third. But that middle can just be like trudging through I don't know what. Um, and so for the middle book of the series to be, you know, singled out in this way is very, very exciting for me. So Very exciting. And winners will be announced on the 25th of March, 2016. So congratulations, Al. That's just Uh, awesome. It's very exciting. I'm just happy to be on the shortlist. And um, we've got a link in the show notes to to some information about it if you're interested in reading forward or buying the book. I mean, let's go crazy. (laughs) Yeah, let's go crazy. Well, I gave the trilogy to my cousins on the weekend. Well, my cousins cousins children yes so they're not quite my nephew you know what I mean they're second cousins oh I don't never understand how those things work yeah, 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 yeah. but um yes so I am keen to get their um get their you know after they've had a chance their to read feedback. it uh their feedback I let you know please do that would yes be and also I believe you have finally been back on Instagram this week out. <laughs> 
I have. Mm. I'm back on Instagram and I'm actually, it's quite fun because uh, when last time I did Instagram, I didn't have a puppy. <laughs> uh, yes. But this time I have Procrasty Pup and he's been taking selfies. So if you are actually, um, you know, interested in having a look at what this famed and mythical creature looks like, um, Procrasty Pup is now an Instagram star and yes. you will find us at Alison Tate Writer. So please uh, come along, share. It's It's been quite amusing so far well we might have to move you on to snapchat soon because after oh. last week's episode um i want to give a shout out to nicole now nicole's last name doesn't appear on her snapchat but she connected me on snapchat and uh sent me a photo in uh, or a video of her own procrasty pup so procrasty oh, may need to move on to snapchat soon well i'm 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 working the writers with dogs hashtag on instagram i've decided that writers with dogs hashtag needs to be a thing i'm okay. using it on twitter i'm using it on facebook i'm using it on instagram if you are a writer with a dog please <laughs> hashtag me on or do whatever i don't even know how it works do whatever it is that we do on instagram but share pictures of your puppies with me come on yes. we need to because everyone thinks that writers have cats and they don't well, some of us have both. I know, I'm just mm. saying. But there's okay. this whole thing about crazy cat ladies writing and <laughs> crazy dog ladies write too is all I'm saying. All right. All right. So let's We're move up. on to something completely different. We have a um, link which is from Mentor Floss. We put the link in the show notes and if anyone does want to look at our show notes, uh, you can find them at writerscentercomau slash podcast. And this link is called What Famous Novels Look Like Stripped of Everything but punctuation. And I just kind of look at some this of these. This is crazy. You images. actually do need to look at the show notes for this because this is a very visual thing. I don't yes. actually quite know how we're going to discuss this, but okay. Well, Show what now. some really keen people have done, well, specifically a scientist and writer called Adam Calhoun, has decided to compare how different literary figures throughout history have wielded punctuation. So he's taken novels like Pride and Prejudice, Frankenstein and Ulysses and he's taken all the words out to look at the, the the visual difference between some person's use of punctuation and another's. So, for example, some uh, authors use a whole lot more question marks than others. Um, some use heaps more commas than others. And, um, yeah, he's also taken it upon himself to chart the number of words per sentence in certain novels and represented them in a graphical way. It's like... Goodness you know, me. <laughs> I would have thought I'm this. I'm actually quite surprised by this. In that, only from the perspective I'm looking at Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. okay, and you know Jane Austen is famed for her use of the semicolon. Mm-hmm. I remember discussing it in Year Eight English. There was a lot of discussion about semicolons, which of course are not particularly fashionable these days. You may have noticed mm-hmm. they've been, you know. Um, there's actually a lot, a lot less semicolons there than I would have imagined. Although many more than there are in Ulysses. Yes. Or Indeed. a farewell to arms, which I think uses one semicolon <laughs> in the entire book. But, but yes, um, if you're a bit geeky, I think this is quite an interesting thing to have a look at. You know, I, I'm in, Val. You've okay. <laughs> I was, yeah, like I'm looking at this. I was kind of like thinking, what is this? But in actual fact, I'm now fascinated and I will have a look at even more of these, I believe. Now, I thought we'd move on to um, Elena Ferrante. Is that how you say it? Elena Ferrante. I think so. Elena Ferrante. Oh, I don't or know. Elena I'm not exactly Ferrante. sure. Yeah. Well, you just recently read the book in the Pink Fibro Book Club, didn't you? 
Yes, we did. We read the first in her series. So she's written a series which are called the Neapolitan Novels and we read the first one which is called My Brilliant Friend, which came out in 2013. And I chose the book in um, December because over the December-January period we just read one book for the two months. Normally Mm. we have one book a month. But because everybody's a bit busy and it's Mm. beachy and, you know, we do all that, Mm. we have the two months. And so I thought, well, this will be good because it's the first book of four. So if I really like it... I've yeah. got more to go on to. And it's been a really interesting um, exercise with the Pink Fibre Book Club because we have nearly 800 members and, mm. you know, they swing in and out. There's, you know, some who are more active than others. and But I, I would say that this particular book probably divided the group more than any other that we've had so far, mm. only from the perspective that people either – loved it and mm. read all four books Ooh. by the time in that eight-week period, as I as I thought I would, or they just didn't get into it at all, as right. I did not. Mm. Um, and they were sort of like, because it's a very, it's very slow in a strange sort of way. Although mm. everybody did say to me in, when I was commenting in the Facebook group that we have, that book two picks up, books two, three, four really pick up. Book right. one is very much based, based is they're quite autobiographical, these novels, right. and uh, book one is very much the childhood um, where uh, there are two girls that meet yes. and um, they it's very much based around their childhood in Naples and it's a fascinating look at what Naples was like at that time. In mm. fact, that's probably that was probably the most interesting um aspect of it for me because I found the story very slow and you know a bit sort of whatever but people a lot of the readers in the pink fiber group absolutely loved it and Mm. you know as I said went on to read all four but of course the most interesting or one of the most interesting things about Elena Ferrante Mm. is that she doesn't exist yes Yes, she's so a pseudonym. She is a pseudonym, that's right. And um, she was interviewed recently by Deborah Orr uh, in The Guardian and she said, so she is in a real person obviously, but the, oh. she's a pseudonym, she oh. said that anonymity lets me concentrate exclusively on writing. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm. And I was wondering if you were not writing to your name or a name associated with you, so you were writing anonymously, would you, A, be writing what you are writing now? Would you be writing in a completely different genre? Would you be writing in a completely different way? Do tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think if, I guess if I wanted to write something that was particularly, I mean, we've talked before about the difficulty of memoir, about the fact mm. that memoir and, and biography, autobiography, it's not just your story you're telling. Yes. So I think if I wanted to write something that was um, that was very close to home, even if it was fictionalised, but it was incredibly thinly disguised close to home, I think mm. I would probably do that under another name um, just so that you don't hurt people. Like, you, you know, you can words can be incredibly cruel. Sure, that's different, Without even realising. I mean, I, but, I do, but I do understand that. But she's done. Yes, like yes. Like, she's writing thinly described, dis- disguised autobiography, by all accounts, thinly mm. disguised autobiography. So she has written it under another name perhaps to protect people around her. So if mm. I was going to write that maybe, but I, I don't think that, um, oh, and if I was going to write, you know, erotica. <laughs> probably do that under another name just simply because I have children yes and, they, and you know the entire school playground doesn't need to be discussing <laughs> my son's mother's intimate knowledge of the various aspects of sex you know okay. 
Will that get us a triple? Will we get an extra? No, I think we're we're okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, there's that aspect, I suppose. But yeah, I I don't know. Like I, I don't know that I. I mean, people people choose to write under different names for lots of different reasons. Yes. But like I think it's if I wanted to write something that wasn't A.L. Tatish, if I wanted to write a completely different series, I might need to do that now under a different name, even if it was for children. Although that might be a market from a marketing point of view, not so much for a you know creative exactly. expression point of view. No, it would be from a marketing perspective. Mm, mm. Yeah. So I suspect that um, with fiction, if I knew I had the veil of anonymity, I possibly would write in a different way. Um, I totally get what you're saying about, you know, when you're writing memoir for the reasons that you've already said, but um, it's almost a little bit more freeing, a little bit more liberating, I suppose. I'm not sure. But that's a, yeah, food for thought. Give it a go. Give it a go, give it a go. Let's move on to something a little bit unusual. Um, it's kind of cute. I thought I'd mention it. We won't read the whole thing in the uh, in the episode, but we'll put the link in the uh, show notes. And this is from The Poke. And it's a great poem that um, it's quite long, which is why we won't recite it. Uh, it's called The Chaos by Gerard Nolst Trenite, written nearly 100 years ago in 19. 19- 22 and is designed to demonstrate the irregularity of English spelling and pronunciation. So it's actually got lots of different words uh, that you that are seemingly pronounced in the same way, but actually uh, are very, very different. So I will just read the first few lines. Dearest creature in creation, study English pronunciation. I will teach you in my verse sounds like corpse cause, horse, and worse. I will keep you I wouldn't Susie, say cause. Busy. I would say core. Oh, yes, sorry. My fault. Oh, there you go. My fault. Right there. They yes. got you right there. I got me right there. <laughs> exactly. You got me right there. <laughs> you want me to read some for you? you go ahead. Hair, heart, beard, and herd, mm. dies and diet, lord and word, sword and sword, retain and Britain, mind the latter how it's written. <laughs> now I surely will not plague you with such words as plaque and ague, but be careful how you speak. Say break and stake, but bleak and streak. Yeah. So it's quite fun. It's, yeah, it's a great it's a poem. tongue twister. I'm totally going to give this to my kids. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. So we'll put the link in the show notes, but it's a cute poem and it's very clever. It makes you think about the pronunciation of things. And it's very, very, very long. I like it the is ending. Long. Finally, which rhymes with enough, though, through, plough or dough or cough. Mm-hmm. Hiccup has the sound of cup. My advice is to give up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great little poem. Very clever. Now, we shared a post this week on the Writer's Centre Facebook page that went off, didn't we? Oh, we did, and it really did. It went completely nuts, and it's an interesting one. So it's a post written by our friend, presenter, and, of course, author, Natasha Lester, Mm. who has a new book coming out in April, which I have read. It's called A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, and um, it's great, and Natasha and I will Mm. be talking about that a little bit down the track. But this was a post, and it's called How to Write the Beginning of a Novel, Ten Things You Shouldn't Do. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who are currently writing the beginning of a novel because it was shared many times and it um, yep. it went all over the place. So she talks about the various things of 
that that you shouldn't do in starting your story. And of course, the first one is backstory. And we mm. talked about backstory last week. Um, but backstory is information about your character's background. And most of it does not belong in the first three chapters of your novel. Yep. But the temptation for every author is to whack it in the first three chapters in a massive information dump so that people um, can get, get get to know every single thing about their character, you know, in, in that first part of the novel. But as Natasha says, as a reader, you want to get to know the character the way you get to know a person in real life. You don't get their entire mm. history in the first conversation that you have with them, but you start to see it. And learning to sort of manage backstory is one of the most difficult things as an author of fiction that you need to do. It's really interesting. And deciding what it's the interesting, one of the interesting things about it is deciding what your reader needs to know about the character and what you as the writer needs to know that you just need, that the reader needs to find out. Yes. What can be applied. So that's quite an interesting thing. Um, The other thing, of course, that a lot of us will do uh, to start a story, particularly when we're, starting out as writers, is to throw in an excessive description of where the character is. You know, we're going to open with a description and it's going to be a sunset and the trees (laughs) and the alarm clock. And, you know, by the time you're sort of three paragraphs in, you've lost your reader entirely. Yeah. So you've got to drip feed that information into, you drip feed it in. Like a, a reader needs to know where they are. But as Natasha says in her piece, attach it to a character's viewpoint. Yes. So let us see where the reader, where the character is through the character's eyes Um, because that way we're learning something about the character at the same time. And that relates to another point on her list is to avoid shopping lists. And (laughs) she doesn't mean like what you buy from Woolworths. No. She means shopping lists like she had red hair, blue eyes, porcelain skin, one cute dimple and a huge smile. Her dress was long and flowery, her shoes were dainty and her toenails red. So it's just a huge shopping list of a character description. So she's saying it's much better to have the character in action talking Mm. to another character where her smile and dimple become apparent or that sort of thing. Yes. So yes, it's yeah, it's a good post. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. Yes. So let us move on to our giveaway for this week. And what do we have this week, Valerie? We have a cool giveaway. We have the book called The Outsider, uh, My Life in Intrigue, and it's by Frederick Forsyth. So uh, he has modern thriller novels that have sold millions of copies around the world, like, you know, Day of the Jackal, many people have heard of, The Odessa File, The Fourth Protocol, and heaps, heaps more. Uh, And basically this um, this is his book. So this is, this is his story, is it? Is this like a biography or? Yes, that's right. In this memoir, uh, he basically shares events of his life that, you know, oh. provided inspiration for his novels, but, uh, you know, what things that went on in his life, um, civil wars, spies, <laughs> typewriters, um, all of that sort of thing. So if you're interested in the mind and life of a thriller novelist. This is certainly a good one. Uh, All you need to do is go to writerscentre.com.au slash win and uh, enter your details and entries close midday Monday, 29 February. But uh, that's the leap, that's a leap year. 
That's 29th of February. Oh, Yes, there you go. It's our leap year this year. But if you do listen to this podcast in the future, don't worry. If you go to that URL, writerscentercomau slash win, you'll still get an opportunity to win, uh, to enter a competition to win whatever book we've got going on at that time. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our Stage 2 Creative Writing course, Advanced Fiction Writing Techniques, will help you apply proven methods to your own writing, taking your storytelling to a whole new level. With workshopping and practical exercises focusing on scene development, characters, climax and resolution, it's your perfect next step. Learn online with a few hours each week. You'll even get your own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writercentercomau slash advanced. Let's move on to our writing book for the week, Al. Okay, what have you got for us, Valerie? I know that's probably going to be something riveting. <laughs> I bought it, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> but, you know, because I can't resist. I see these things in the shops and I just have to buy them. Hmm. And this one is called Shady Characters ampersands in terabangs and other typographical curiosities by Keith Houston. And basically (laughs) (laughs) what this book is about is all the characters that we use all the time, you know, ampersands, the at symbol, um, the hash we use in hashtags, like where in the world did they come from? So it says, you know, the cast of this book in order of appearance are the Pilcrow, which you often see sometimes at the end of um, went to, in the image that they use to express a return. Um, oh. when, when you can when you put okay. the formatting characters what that's up, that's yeah, interesting. the right. Interrobang. An Interrobang. That's the one that is a combination of the question mark and the exclamation mark. Oh, okay. And the hashtag, do you know what the real, you know, the hashtag that we use when yeah, we yeah. Instagram hashtag. and stuff? Yeah. Do you know what that's really called? No. The Octothorpe. No. Octothorpe. So mm. why do we call it a hashtag? I don't Can you know. read the book and find out? I will because that this, it <laughs> um, goes into a great amount of depth. There's a chapter on every single one of these. For, a chapter? Yeah, they, it grows into great depth into the history of these characters. So I'm, I will reveal one character per week for the next eight weeks. <laughs> no. <laughs> Aren't you just riveted? Oh, fascinated? look, I can, I can hear people hitting the subscribe button right now, Valerie. They cannot wait. I'll summarise it into a sentence. I think it I'm would sure be interesting. Fabulous. Okay, good. Anyway, who is <laughs> who is our writer in residence this week, Al? Oh, look, I had the best fun this week. Um, so this week I interviewed Adrian McKinty, who is a thriller author, a crime fiction, and he has a series, the Sean Duffy series, which is set in Northern Ireland. And I discovered this series thanks to Twitter. Twitter does sell books, people. So I saw it um, a few months ago. I saw people talking about this thing and I thought, I've got to have a look at this. And Adrian has been compared to Ian Rankin and, you know, other amazing crime authors. So I thought, I've got to have a look at this. So I bought the first one and consumed it in what felt like minutes and then went on and bought all the others. And he has a new book out called Rain Dogs, which is the fifth book in the Sean Duffy series. And if you like 
a crime novel and you're a fan of Ian Rankin, then I really recommend you have a look at these because um, they're set in Belfast and the setting for me is like, it is a character in the book and it is amazing. I really, really enjoyed the detail. Uh, Adrian grew up in Northern Ireland. He's now based, he lives um, in St Kilda. When I interviewed him, he was in New York being fabulous. Um, but I really love his attitude. He's, uh, he's quite an interesting man and very funny and he does have a great accent. So, you know, really what more could you ask for? Um, so here's Adrian McKinty. Adrian McKinty was born and grew up in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland, emigrating to New York City in the early 90s and working various jobs. In 2001, he became a high school English teacher and began writing fiction before moving to Australia in 2008. His first crime novel, Dead I Well May Be, was shortlisted for the 2004 Steel Dagger Award and he has written 16 novels since then, many of them shortlisted or longlisted or award winners. His first Sean Duffy novel, The Cold Cold Ground, won the 2013 Spine Tingler Award and the series has gone from strength to strength since then. Rain Dogs, the fifth book in the series, was released last month. So hello, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast. It's great to be here. Um, and I have to say, I did confess to you earlier that I am a fan of the Sean Duffy series. I am actually reading Rain Dogs at the moment, and I've read all the others. So I'm very excited to be talking to you today. Um, but you've written 16 books, which is, you know, a fair whack. So t can you tell us about when and how you started writing fiction? Like, what, what brought it on? Well, I never really thought about becoming a writer at all. I mean, I'd done so many different... I'd worked construction, I'd been a bricklayer, um, I'd worked in a pub for many, many years. Then I became a librarian, and finally I became a school teacher. And I was um, teaching at a high school in Denver, Colorado, and I was teaching um, English. Um, somehow I ended up becoming a high school English teacher. And I was teaching, um, every year I taught the, this thing called the short story unit, which I actually loved teaching because it was a really fun course that we did. We taught basically classic short stories, you know, oh, Henry and Hemingway, Virginia Woolf, all the, all the, all the great short story writers. And um, at the end of the unit, the kids hated it because I always made them write a short story which they always complained and whined about because they said, our lives are so boring and no one's ever going to be interested in us. Um, you know, why do we have to write it? And I said, no, that's completely not true. Your lives are so interesting. As Mark Twain said, there wasn't a human born yet whose story wasn't interesting mm. and couldn't be made a book out of. And um, it's completely true. And everybody's like, and every year they would turn in these amazing short stories about their lives, their fears, their hopes, their dreams. The more autobiographical they got, the better they were. Mm -hmm. And um, and then one year, they one of the a particularly lively lot said to me, "Mr. McKinty, you're such a hypocrite. How come you you say <laughs> we have to write these short stories, but you never do it?" And I said, "Because I'm the bloody teacher. I don't have to do anything." And uh, and eventually, all their complaining and whining got to me, and I thought, oh, "Okay, I'll write a short story." And then I wrote a short story, and I felt longer and longer, and and finally, but I, before I really knew what had happened, I'd written a ninety thousand word novel. Wow! And, um, I said to the missus, "Look, she, I knew she, she was also an English teacher, but at university level." And I said, "Do you think this is any good?" And she read it and said, "Yeah, I think it's not bad." And I sent it off to. Well, I got the big book of agents. You know that big yeah, book yeah. of agents. And I basically picked a, a, a random name out and sent the book to him. And he said, yeah, I'll take you on. 
And um, then it was sort of really a bit of a whirlwind because we sent the Harper Collins who said no, and then we sent it to Simon and Schuster who said yes, and that was basically it. Wow, that's amazing. So that was the first manuscript you'd ever written? Yes. Was it the first draft of the first manuscript you'd ever written? Um, pretty much, oh. yeah. <laughs> um, it was the, the initial draft was about 90,000 words, and then when it came to my editor, um, he was this kind of famous New York editor called Colin Harrison. Yeah. And he said, um, you know, there's a lot missing in this story. It's going to have to be about a quarter longer than what you've done. You've, you've missed out. And I'd basically done a lot of jumping from A to C to D. Uh, and he said, that's not how you write fiction. You've got to fill in the B and then you've got to fill in the E and, you know, develop these characters. And, and so he, he was the one that really taught me how to make this 90,000 word really roughed story into like a proper 110,000 word novel. And uh, so he was my sort of mentor and coach. And did you find it like that process of, you know, like you've, you've written this thing and, and, you know, clearly they've obviously, there's a lot of, a lot in it. Like the voice is obviously amazing because otherwise I wouldn't have bought it. Um, what, so how did you then find the editing process at that point? Like, was it a bit of a shock to the system having to go back and do all those things? I thought it was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> the the actual writing was so much fun um, because you just sit down at a blank computer screen and you you type away and you just go, oh, this is great. These This dialogue, it would just fall and just go, I wonder what happens to these characters next. Then you just sort of follow the characters and wrote dialogue. And, and, and for that first book, it was very heavily autobiographical. Right. I'd emigrated right. to New York um, in the early 90s, and I'd basically been an illegal immigrant for about three years. And so what that entailed was, and I was on a tourist visa, and I was working in these like pubs and various other places, and uh, just getting paid under the table and working with all these kind of like I would say low level, really low level mobsters and stuff. And so that, that was sort of the basis of the book. And I thought this will be fun putting all these kind of real people in the book and giving them dialogue and then giving a story skeleton within that sort of semi-autobiographical milieu. And then, so that was really fun to write that story and remember all this stuff from New York in the 90s and all this dialogue I'd forgotten. So that was fun. And then having to go back and edit it and make it all make sense and <laughs> cut it and shape it and then read it again and then read it again and read it again. I just thought, oh, this is torture. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. this bit I hate, you know. And so that, that, really, that was really the work part of it because the actual writing part of it was fun, but the editing, oh boy, that was tough. And then the, the copy editing, oh, that was even worse. <laughs> oh, it's uh, so, the editing is so fun. Um, so uh, let me ask you this then. Did it change the way that you approached your second manuscript? Like the fact that you'd gone through that process with the first one? Yeah, it totally did. I said never again. Um, <laughs> after, that, after that first book, I said, you know, this was a blast, but if I have to go through all that editing and rereading again and um, – and all that copy, I'm never doing any more of these. That okay. was that was that was really miserable. And um, and then basically a year went by, and my agent and my editor said, "Come on, you know, think of another book." And then I said to my I said to my agent, "Is there any way I could just do the the fun part of it, and then have someone <laughs> someone else 
do all the other part of it? And he said, no, that's not really how it works, mate. Uh, you have to do the whole hog. So then I put myself through the ringer again and wrote another book. Right. So you've done it 16 times now. So clearly um, you've kind of got used to the process. No, I've never gotten used to the process. It's always been torture. Oh. Uh, you, you, you write this book and you're really happy with it and you send it off. And and then the editor comes back and they said, well, now you have to do this, this, and this, and you have to make these changes. And the terrible thing is, she's always right. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, God, yeah, she's right. I do have to make these changes. So then you have to go and read the flipping thing again, and then you have to read it again. And then, so you, you read it about four or five times for the editor, and then you read it another couple of times for the proofreader. Yeah. And so you've read this manuscript six times. And the worst thing are the jokes. I mean, my God, what seemed funny the first time? By the time, sixth time you want to read, you read this thing, you want to kill yourself. You just go, oh, my God, why am I allowing this to be published with my name connected to it? It's a huge embarrassment. Oh, you know? So it's, 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 it's been grim every time. I, I, I always say, look, if I won the lottery, you'll never hear from Adrian McKinney again. Oh, because- really? So you're not someone who does it just for the love of it? No, no, you, have to, you just go, well, how come this guy ended mid-series or what? He, he actually finished in the middle of a sentence. That, that'll, be, that'll be me. That's I'll hilarious. So you like, so uh, from this I'm getting that the, the writing is still easy. You still love the writing, but the editing yes. aspect of it, you just can't stand. I love the initial blank screen and getting the stuff down on paper. And, you know, the especially the dialogue I love when these characters just sort of bounce off each other and you, you can't really predict if, if you, if you've given the characters enough life so that they can live and breathe by themselves, you know, they, it's so much fun having the bounce across each other and, and have conversations and, and, all, and all that stuff. So I actually really do enjoy the writing process. Um, but then all the other aspects of, of putting the book together, it, it can be a bit of heavy lifting. Okay. okay. Well, let's talk about your writing process then, because I'm getting the, the vibe from you that you're not a planner, that you're actually just like you start with a, an idea and a sentence and off you go. Is that is that how you work? Um, it's Sometimes it's like that. Okay. Um, now that I've been writing, um, uh, well, uh, the last couple of bo- last two or three books, I've had fairly densely plotted mystery novels, yes. and um, with those, you can't get away with that. Yeah, you really. Um, and I'm, uh, the last one, I've, I wrote a locked room mystery for the first time. That was the third book in um, yeah. the Sean Duffy series, and for that one, for that to work, I had to plot that thing out like a, a, a clockwork. Um, toy that I was building myself. Wow. I mean, I really had to. That was incredibly tightly um, planned. Yeah. So that that every chapter had to be planned. What the information I was going to give to the reader had to be conveyed in the plan within that chapter, and then I had to check the plan to make sure that everything was. Because I hate those mystery novels, especially a locked room mystery. I'm, I'm quite passionate about those, mm. and I hate ones where the author cheats and doesn't give the reader all the information or gives the reader all their information four pages before the end or oh, even worse introduces a character we've never seen before yeah. uh, seven pages before the end so with those books they have to make really really sure that everything is in place and so those are 
pretty meticulously planned mm. um, those books with other books it it can be a little bit more um seat of the pants okay and so you write you write you're obviously you're writing crime mystery thriller is that that's your passion that genre is your passion why do you write that what where does that come from well i'm i grew up in a um i, I went to schools in ireland and it was mm-hmm. very very traditional schooling so Basically, we did nothing that was published um, that was considered modern or contemporary um, because the teachers didn't feel if it had proven its worth yet. So we did nothing after 1900. Okay. So it was a lot of Victorian literature. And, oh, I did not enjoy that stuff um, at all. Apart from Jane Austen, I loved her. Yeah. But all those Dickens, I mean, we read all those Dickens novels. It's all the, big- the Dickens <laughs> Yeah, like Little Dorrit, which is, you know, yeah. 700 pages and Bleak House and Dombey and Son. My God. And, and we read, the, our teacher was particularly fond of Thomas Hardy. Oh. And we read a lot of those. And Thomas Hardy's you know, kind of an amazing writer. But, you know, to be exposed to that when you're like 13 or 14. I mean, I remember one of those novels. I forget which one. Where he spends the first 15 pages of the book describing a heath. Yeah. And it's the... The heath in the winter and the heath in the spring and the heath in the summer. And you got, oh my God, what's going to be the next four pages? Oh, I, I can't believe it. The heath in the autumn. Uh, <laughs> just like, how does he get away with this? This is like 16 without any dialogue. Yeah. Uh, it's all the heath. And, you know, it's kind of incredible, really, that he, that, he, that he did do that. But still, that stuff bored the pants out of me. Right. And I thought that's what literature was. I thought that's what novels were. And so I thought, as soon as I leave this school, I'm never picking up a novel again as, far, as long as I live. Um, but then by some fluke, maybe it was a rainy day or something, I was in Belfast Central Library, and I saw this stack of um, Raymond Chandler novels stacked oh, yeah. up on a table. And they had these incredibly cool, sexy covers, you know, like a guy in a, in a Homburg and a raincoat. And like some like sophisticated woman smoking a cigarette or something on the cover. And I thought, well, this, look, what's this? And I'd never heard of Raymond Chandler before. And uh, I started reading it. And he's funny. And, and, and so I, I read, like, there was only about six or seven of those. So I read all of those in a week. Yeah. And I went to the librarian and said, can I have more of this stuff? And so then she directed me on the Dashiell Hammett and then Jim Thompson and then um, I broadened out into all those classic 1930s Agatha Christie novels, which I love, yeah. and Dorothy Alcaris. And I thought, oh, this is my cup of tea. You know, these books where it's basically you've got a skeleton. And you know what's going to happen as a reader? Mm-hmm. You know, someone's going to die or there's going to be a major incident. But within that skeleton, you can be as free as you like. And, and, I just, and also, I loved it because especially in Jim Thompson's novels of the 50s, you had these working-class characters, uh, which you never really saw in, um, you know, the other, the sort of the books that my um, mom and older sisters were always trying to get me to read the latest Booker Prize winner. Yeah. Oh, you should stop reading that trash. You should read this, you know, The Bone People by Carrie Hume or, you know, the latest Kingsley Amos novel. Yeah. And it was always like... You know, upper middle class people and their bloody problems, uh, you know, in leafy North London. And I thought, well, you know, this is, these people are not, this, as Morrissey says, this says nothing to me about my life. 
you know, uh, whereas these working class characters in these crime novels, you know, those were the people that I was growing up with and interacting with. So I just sort of fell in love with the genre and it, and it, it grabbed me and never really let go. So when you started writing your short stories for your high school class, was that just, you know, was that pretty much what came out of you beyond the autobiographical stuff? Not really. For the short stories, I was basically writing these horrible um, pastiche O. Henry stories. Okay. Um, have you ever read O. Henry? Yes. And they're, they're really, you know, only O. Henry can write like O. Henry and get away with it because yeah. they're pretty easy if anybody else tries to do it. So I was writing that stuff and I thought, well, this is horrible. Uh, <laughs> These are really terrible. And so I thought, no, I just have to be more truthful and honest and not try to have like a beginning, middle and end. And so my first novel is basically a shaggy dog autobiography. Yeah. And then there's this crime arc that suddenly develops like a third of the way in. Yeah. And it's the arc that carries you, the reader, through to the end. And, and I think that's a really important part of the fiction. If it's not true, at least to you, the, the writer then no one else is going to believe it either. Yeah, it's very true. All right, so let's talk about Sean Duffy then because um, he's a, been, become, like, he's a great character and I know that you, I've been seeing, you know, comparisons to, you know, Rankin and all that sort of stuff with uh, reviews and things for you. Where did he come from? Like when you sat down, did you sit down to write a Sean Duffy book and think this is a guy, I've got a character here that will carry a series or did you write uh, a book and then there was just more to be had? Um, well, it was a bit of a complicated process. Okay. In, okay. In, in, when, when my first novel came out, um, it didn't do well commercially. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't sell many copies, but it did very well critically. I um, mean, it got very good notices in the papers and it attracted a lot of attention from reviewers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I had a chance to, um, so they gave me an opportunity to go in and pitch um, a TV series to the BBC. Wow. And this is in 2004. And so I went into the BBC to pitch this uh, series. I thought it would be a great idea. I thought um, this cop show in Belfast during the 70s, during the Troubles. Mm. And I thought, you know, it can be like all those classic um, cop shows of the 70s, you know, like Starsky and Hutch or the Sweeney, you know, buddies and their cops. It's in Belfast. But it, uh, as well as you having these cops solving all these mysteries every week, you're dealing with this terrible time in Belfast in the seventies with the troubles, you know, uh, you yeah. know, that, that stuff that's going on. And so you've got seventies music, seventies fashion and the troubles. And so I, I pitched this show to the BBC. I thought it was a really good idea. And the BBC couldn't have been more horrified. Mm. And, and I thought I'd done this brilliant pitch and they, this, I remember if you forget this, there was this wise old owl, as I like to think of him, from the BBC, and he said, young man, I have something to tell you. And I go, and I'm, th- I'm seeing the dollar signs. I'm thinking, what he's telling me is that we're going to make our fortune together. You, <laughs> you and McKinty, this is it. Quit whatever you're doing and start working on this. And he says, young man, I have to tell you something. That's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. <gasps> And he goes, yes. And he says, one of the worst ideas. Why? And he says, well, look, Northern Ireland as a subject does not sell anywhere. Nobody in Northern Ireland wants to watch a TV series set during the Troubles. Nobody in the 
Republic of Ireland ever wants to hear about the Northern Ireland Troubles ever again. Mm-hmm. So forget getting a Coke deal with the RTA. Which is, everybody in England wants Ireland to be dragged out into the middle of the Atlantic <laughs> and, and forgotten about forever. And he says, and forget trying to sell this in America. In America, they still think it's the quiet man and 1950 Ireland. So this is just going to completely baffle him. And he said, if I can give you some advice about your writing career. And I go, yes. Because I was very young and very old years. And he says, never write about Northern Ireland and certainly never write about the Troubles. Wow. So I walked out to DC that day and I thought, well, at least I've learned something. You know, I'll keep writing crime fiction because I love it, but I'll never write about Northern Ireland. I'll never write about the Troubles. Wow. And, and so basically for the next seven years or eight years, I wrote about everywhere else I'd ever visited. You know, I wrote about wow. York. I wrote about Denver. I wrote about England. My God, I even wrote about Cuba. And I'd been to Cuba and I'd, I'd lo- fell in love with that place. I wrote about, but I never touched Ireland with a 10-foot pole. And then one day in 2012, I was in Melbourne and I was sort of stuck for a story. And I knew I wanted to write something because I had itchy fingers and I had the computer screen open. And I started writing the first page of um, The Cold, Cold Ground. And I really liked what I'd done with that page, just in terms of the lyricism and the poetry. Uh, And I thought, oh, dear, McKinley, I think you might be in trouble here. Because this is clearly Belfast that you're writing about. And I thought, oh, well, don't worry about it. Maybe the story starts in Belfast, but it goes somewhere else. So I wrote about four or five more pages the next day. And then by the end of the week, I'd written a chapter. And I I was really quite despairing because I thought, wow, this is obviously Belfast. Um, I'm in big trouble here. And I just kept writing away. And at the end of a couple of months, um, I'd written the book. And I thought, well, you know, it never left Northern Ireland. The whole book takes place in Belfast. And worse, the whole book takes place in Belfast in 1981, which is the dark heart of the Troubles, the worst Troubles. And I thought... Oh my God, the guy's right. No one's going to want to read about this. So um, I sent it to my agent with, I wouldn't exactly call it enthusiasm, uh, but he was very chipper as always. And so he sent it to my US publishers and they immediately turned it down. Oh, you're kidding. Uh, No, they said. um, Because that's one of the things I like most about the series. Is the back is is that is is Belfast and the troubles and the way you describe it and it feels really real and I actually I think it's one of the best things about the whole series. Yeah, I know. Well, I I loved writing about it. I love the atmosphere. I love yeah. the re. I love the check in the car every time he comes out the front door. <laughs> but we sent it to the Americans and they said no, we're not interested. It it doesn't make it doesn't make sense for American readers. We don't know what the hell you're talking about. The troubles. No one knows what that is. If you want, I actually had this conversation with the senior editor at a publishing house I won't name, but he said to me, now we've just gotten a manuscript from uh, this guy called John Banville. Have you heard of him? I said, of course. And he said, now this is the kind of Ireland we want to publish. And it's set in 1950s Dublin and there's nuns on bicycles in every pages and there's people with flat caps and smoky pubs in Guinness and... Wow. That's the Ireland they wanted to publish. And, uh, you know, John Banville's quirk novels, in fact, did very, very well in America. 
And in fact, they made the BBC, bought them and did a BBC. And they've done spectacularly well. Um, they're not exactly my cup of tea, but um, you know, the, you can't deny that the, the books have been a commercial success. Mm. And so, so he turned down this Belfast novel because he said it just doesn't make sense to our American readers. And um, we went to two or three other American publishers, and they also said no. They also turned it down. And um, but then, thankfully, I, so I was pretty depressed by this stage. And then, but thankfully, we went to our British publishers and said, "Look, Adrian's written this book. It's set in Northern Ireland." But we sort of apologetically went to them. Said, "Unfortunately, it's set in Northern Ireland. You know, it's set in Belfast. It's set in the Troubles. We're so sorry, but can you take a look at it?" And then they took a look at it and said, "God, we love this. Mm. You know, we love to publish. In fact, how about you do three of them?" Uh, uh, and I go, "Wow, trilogy! I didn't think of that." And then I. I said, well, let me think about that, see if I can sketch out some ideas for a book two and a book three. And I had a really, what I thought was a great idea for a book three, so I agreed to do the trilogy. So are you getting to know, like, we're up to book five now. Are you, like, were you also exploring more of that character? Like, you're pretty much exploring that character in each book as you go, aren't you? Like, because you, you didn't know everything about him right from the start. Is that right? No. I mean, all I knew is, <laughs> I thought I had what I had was a really good idea. I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll take this guy and I'll put him in the house. I'll put him in the house where I grew up. I was yeah. born and grew up. I was born and grew up in this very Protestant housing estate in the North Belfast suburbs. And I'll put this guy in with all my real neighbors okay. and all the old people of the street. And all I'll do is I'll change their names. <laughs> and, um, so... <laughs> And I thought, myself, no, what would annoy them the most? What would annoy them the most was if I put a uh, policeman right down in the middle of their street. Yeah. And even yeah. what will annoy them even more is if I make him a Catholic yeah. policeman because they're all very intensely Protestant. And even more annoying for them, I'll make him come from Derry, which is a, you know quite distinctively different from Belfast, part of Northern Ireland. So, And I'll make him be sort of middle class or even upper middle class. And I'll um, have that they're all solid working class. So I'll have all these delicious fracture lines of religion and profession and class. Oh, and I'll just to really annoy them, I'll make them a bit of a bohemian hippie and with a different taste in music. So I had all these delicious things that I knew this will really set them on edge. And um, they'll probably want to kill him from the get-go. Yeah. And um, that'll create so much friction that it'll be really fun to write. And it proved correct, like, right from the get <laughs> You were just, like, rubbing your hands together with glee as you added all these things, weren't you? I, I really thought this is just going to annoy every single person on that street that I grew up with. And um, just having this Catholic cop in their midst who's into like all this weird bohemian music and literature and art and stuff. And they're just going to be furious with him from day one. And that's going to be fantastic. And of course he's going to be super suspicious of them as well. And then maybe over the course of the book, they can change and he can change and they can grow to know more about him and he can grow to know more about them. And um, we can have a clash of cultures and also a bit of understanding along the way. Right. And so now you just carry that through into each book. Yeah. I mean, you still have the friction underneath the surface, but, um, you know, I, I hit those books where 
you get to book two or book three and the author basically hits the reset button. I mean, we've all seen those yeah. series. Where, you know, the, the, the characters, they just never arc. They never grow. They never change. It's just the same. And I thought, well, this is going to be so boring for me to write this. He has to grow and he has to change and he has to develop. And that's the only way I can keep the interest in, in, in this character. So hopefully the readers will keep their interest as well as if everyone grows and everyone arcs and everyone changes. So as the profile of the series grows, because it seems to be growing with each book, um, there seems to be like, you know, are, are you feeling kind of more pressure or less pressure as each book comes out? I'm feeling less pressure. Um, at the end of the third book, I wanted to kill him. Um, oh. I thought, okay, I've got a, an amazing poetic death for him. Because the third book takes place in the Brighton bombing, which is yeah. like a real event when the IRA almost killed Thatcher in 1984 in the, in the Grand Hotel in Brighton. And I thought, well, this will be a fantastic way to kill the character. I'll put him in that hotel. I'll have him. He saves Thatcher's life, but he dies. And it's a beautiful poetic death because he hates Thatcher. And um, that's going to be brilliant. Now, what more irony could there be? He saves this woman that he hates, and he gets killed in the process. End of trilogy, end of series. A fantastic, ironic death. So I turned in the third book to the editor, and um, and she said, uh, well, I don't know about this end. <laughs> Where? You kill him, you know. This is going to be a bit. Uh, this is going to be a bit of a shock. Are you sure you won't get reconsider? And I said, No, absolutely not. It's art. Uh, <laughs> you know, look at the irony here. I can't because uh, I love that scene. I don't know if you ever saw the um, uh, the Martin Scorsese film Casino. Yes. And um, do you remember that? But where Joe Pesci is doing the narration and they kill him in mid narration. Yes. Yes. Out to the wheat field and he's narrating the scene. And so you, the viewer, are going, well, he lives, obviously, <laughs> and they kill him in mid-narration, and it's fantastic. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I love that so much. I'll kill Duffy mid-narration and the Brighton bombing and while he's saving this woman he hits. And so I thought, this is so artistically pure and wonderful. Um, uh, I, I, I just love it. So my editor and my agent talked me down from the, um, from the cliff because they said, Adrian, after writing these seven years of writing these books that are quote critically acclaimed but nobody actually buys them um now you've got a series where people are actually buying your books do you really think it's such a good idea to kill your lead character when you're finally making a living from this business yeah uh, they have a point I, adrian it has to be said uh, I, I thought, i'm not listening to these crude crass commercialism you know <laughs> doing one for the artistic merit of it. But finally they did talk me out of it. And uh, I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to kill him this book. But in book four, I'm definitely going to kill him. Because okay. I've got this fantastic way to kill him in this book. Because in real life, again, they, the MI5 um, had taken all the top MI5 agents in Northern Ireland, all the top guys, this is what really happened, who were experts in defeating the IRA, and they'd put them in this, in, to, into one helicopter, yeah. all the special branch police guys, all the top MFA, and they'd flown that helicopter into a mountain in Scotland. That's right. And they wiped out an entire cadre of MI5 guys and special branch guys, and I said, Duffy has to be on that helicopter. Because that, again, it's perfect. It's poetic. It's brilliant. I'll get him out of the police. I'll get him into MI5. He's just thinking everything's turning around for him. 
You know, he's met the love of his life, he thinks. Everything's going great. I'll put him in the helicopter and just smash him, kill him in this beautiful, poetic, ironic death on this bleak Scottish mountainside. So I wrote that book, sent it in to my agent and my editor, and again, they were both horrified. (laughs) (laughs) They said, we love the book. But my God, this ending. This ending, your readers will be furious with you. You can't kill him. And I said, no. Duffy, I had no idea that his life was in the balance in every book. And um, and I said, no, you talked me out of it last time, but this time I'm not listening. And um, and so all the way through the first draft, all the way through the second draft, Duffy died. And then finally, um, they basically like held a gun to my head and said, we're not going to publish this unless you change the ending. Think of your readers. Think of the hate mail. And, think of the sales. Uh, <laughs> yeah, think of the sales. And so I said, all right, but um, from now on, uh, no more long, t- no more trilogies, no more, you know, two or three book deals. I'm going to write these books and you have to allow me to end them the way I want to end them. And so they agreed to that. And I said, if the story calls for the end of this character, you have to let me end the character this way. And so everybody agreed. And so now I feel the pressure's off because okay. now um, I can just write a book. And if he lives at the end, that's because I have always loved standalone mysteries. I always love it as a reader when you're reading a standalone because you never know what's going to happen. The protagonist might make it to the end. They might not make it to the end because it's a standalone. The author has all this tremendous freedom. Whereas you, if, you, if it's a series book, well, you know, well, whatever else happens, you know, they're going to be around for book 17. <laughs> you know, so I, I like the, the lack of the – so I feel there's no pressure. Okay. Um, I go where the story takes me and um, and if I want to stop at five books I will and if I want to kill him I will, I'll kill him and if I want him to grow up and get married and have kids and retire that's what I'll do and um, so I, I, I really don't feel any pressure now Oh, yeah. from a reader's perspective it makes reading the next book very interesting <laughs> yeah I mean uh, hopefully it does because they'll know look this guy you know does not have a 10 book deal um, he's not going to just churn them out for the sake of it. He's writing these books purely for the love of writing the books. And, um, and hopefully that will get communicated to the reader. Because I've read books, which is book nine of a 10-book deal, and you're going, wow, uh, this is dialing it in here. And, um, and sometimes you wonder if they even really wrote it at all. Right. Um, you hear these terrible stories about ghostwriters so they come up with the initial idea, then a ghostwriter takes over and does the actual um, writing of the book for them. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I don't want to name any names, but I, I can hint at who we're talking about here. I, I think we all know who series where yeah. you, you feel that the writer's enthusiasm has waned Wayne, away. Yes, let's leave it at that. <laughs> all right, so you're writing full time now. Do you write every day? Do you have like a routine? Uh, No, I wish I had. Um, I'm always really impressed by those writers who get up at seven and get their thousand words done before breakfast. Um, I love that routine. That was Somerset Mom's way, who I'm really passionate about. And and Anthony Trollope, he did it that way. Virginia Woolf used to go down to her little shed at the bottom of the garden and have a big mug of tea and get her work done in the morning. Uh, Rain or shine, no matter how cold it was. I I, I love that. 
but that is not my way at all. First of all, I don't really function in the mornings. Okay. I wake up and my brain doesn't really kick in until like the third or fourth cup of coffee. And by that stage, it's 11 o'clock and you think, well, it's almost lunchtime. There's no point writing in an empty stomach. And so you sort of pad out the morning until 12 and then you have some lunch and then you go, oh, I feel a bit bloated. I'll put the telly on. And then you put the telly on and it's like two o'clock and you go, well, I obviously can't start now because I have to go and pick the kids up from school. You know, I'll just be, I'll just be writing for 20 minutes and then having to stop in mid flow. So you go get the kids from school and walk them home and you just go, well, it's four o'clock. You know, I have to help the kids with their homework. And then you have the kids, this will not dinner time. There's absolutely no point in starting now. That's ridiculous. Uh, and so you have your dinner and you know, bedtime. And this is, well, now then you have all the chaos of getting the kids to bed. And then I guess the 10 o'clock and you say, well, I have to go look for the cat. I wonder where the cat is. <laughs> and then you spend half an hour looking for the cat. And you go, well, half 10. You know, if I start now, I'll just be writing junk because I'm so tired. So you're uh, a gold medalist procrastinator is what you're saying. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you have a little beer and go to bed and then – get up the next day and then, and then so i i think it's a miracle that these books get written because uh, i don't ever, that way <laughs> i don't ever recall ever writing the last two or three i don't recall ever writing any of them okay uh, i just think well how, how did that get done i don't i don't i don't remember i think you know, you know that story of the elves and the shoemaker <laughs> where the, the, the shoemaker goes to bed and then the elves come in at night and write it do the work yeah Sometimes I think that happens. So you maybe Sometimes, have an elf rider instead of a, gold, think, a ghost rider, yeah? I think there's a ghost elf that <laughs> and does the majority of the writing, and then uh, pleasantly I turn on the computer. Oh, there look, there's a thousand words. Um, I'll, I'll do a little bit of dabbling here, a little bit of dabbling there. <laughs> Make it but my yeah, own. <laughs> almost all my work seems to get done in cafes when I'm waiting for something else okay. or – you know, sort of half an hour here, half an hour there. I don't have a process and I don't have – I certainly don't have a contract or a deadline because that would just scare me too much. Um, and it sort of gets done that way. Um, okay. It's, it's like which, a mystery. I, yeah, which I do not recommend at all, by the no, way. I was going to say no. <laughs> getting up early, having a mug of coffee, getting the bloody work done. That's the best way to do it. So what are your thoughts about, do you do, you do um, I know you have a blog, which is highly entertaining. Do you, um, do you do sort of social media stuff? Like are you, this idea of an author platform, are you feeling that you need to connect with readers and do all those sorts of things? No, not really. I started the blog ten, about 10 years ago mm-hmm. just for as an outlet for sort of reviewing books because I was, I was, I was making a pretty healthy living writing book reviews. Oh, right. and, um, uh, or a, a sort of sideline writing book reviews. And then I thought to myself, well, all these book reviews kind of, you know, they appear in a Saturday morning newspaper and then they vanish off into the ether. So I thought, well, I'll just reblog them in, in my blog. So I'd review. And then some books that um, you'd read and you'd want to write about, but didn't necessarily, like it was maybe like a 30 or 40 year old book. So they obviously didn't want a book review of that. So do that. And then I started reviewing you know, writing in my thoughts of TV shows and films that I wasn't getting paid for, but just like to do that. 
and then it sort of gradually developed to my just blogging every two or three days about whatever was on my mind. And then, much to my surprise, um, people were reading these blogs and then commenting, and then you'd reply to comments. So I developed a pretty fun interaction with the with the audience, and um, I found that tremendously enjoyable mm. because I was finding that the people who were writing to me, you'd write back to them, but there was no sense of immediacy. You know, they'd, they'd write to the, the publishers, and then the publishers would gather all these letters together, and six months later, you'd get these letters, and then I always do respond to people, but there was no immediacy, whereas if you did a blog post about something – Somebody would comment the next day, and then you could comment back to them that same day. And I, I have to say, I found that tremendously thrilling. Um, that 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 it's or, or some people would just not necessarily comment on what you'd written, but just say, "Hey, I just wanted to touch base with you and talk about your books. Really loved your books." Or the reverse. Yeah. I mean, I've had a couple of people. You know, I really hate what you did with this character. Why did you have to kill him? I love that character. You know, you're a bastard. I'm never reading you again. They go, oh, I'm sorry about that. So you know, people do die um, in, in the world. And now it's, it's not all peaches and cream, I'm afraid to say. Um, I'm sorry I upset you. Uh, so, you know, you, you get the good and the bad senses of the immediacy. So do you, uh, I've seen you on Twitter. Is that the only sort of other, beyond your blog, is that, do you have Facebook and things like that? Like what, what uh, where else have- do you engage? Um, just basically the blog or Twitter, and um, and that's basically it. I don't tweet as much as I could, I suppose. Um, I mostly tweet sort of, you know, if I'm reading a really nice bit of writing in the in the newspaper or online or someone else's book that I'll be reading, and I'll just tweet, you know, I've just read this book, you've got to read this, or you've got to read this article, or like I, just last week I read the... I, I, don't know if you're, I don't know if it became a big story in Oz, but over here there was a big story because Sean Penn went and interviewed El Chapo, the escaped yes, drug lord. Yes, yes. And um, what was really interesting was this crime writer called Don Winslow, who is a writer I really respect. Um, he had written a takedown of Sean Penn's piece in Rolling Stone where he forensically ripped Sean Penn's writing style oh. and his oh. assumptions on the drug war and just really destroyed him piece by it's clinical what Don Winslow had done. Mm-hmm. And it was just a beautiful piece of writing. And so I felt the need to tweet this on last week. So I t- ended up tweeting that about six or seven times to my followers. You've got to read Don Winslow's takedown of Sean Penn's go piece. Of yeah. And, and then I said, oh, and by the way, you should also read Don Winslow's crime fiction because he's a wonderful crime writer and then uh, Val McDermott did this great piece in the Guardian last week she was arguing that we're living through this crime golden age um, and I was sort of agreeing with Val and said you've got to read Val McDermott's piece in in the Guardian Um, and I was tweeting that oh and then I had my own piece in the Guardian last week about I saw that about how you tried to to go and sort of sit in a cabin and write your story yeah I went down to Tassie and had a horrible experience. It was hilarious. I, I was laughing so hard because that's, you know, I think the dream of doing that and the reality are, are often so different. Yeah, exactly. So I tweeted that. I mean, that's not on my blog, but I, I'll tweet a link to, you know, to that and mm. stuff like that. 
Cool. All right. So to finish up for today, uh, just if maybe we like to ask our authors for their top three tips. So perhaps you'd like to give us your top three tips for writing crime fiction. Okay. First of all, don't do it my way. Uh, <laughs> that is my number one tip. Don't wait for don't, the elves. Is that what you say? <laughs> don't do the McKinney method, which is somehow write a bit here, write a bit there, um, somehow patch a book together from these scraps and figments um, over the space of a year. For God's sake, do yourself a favor, act like a professional, get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee um, or a cup of tea, have some biscuits or some cereal, whatever, frosted flakes, you know, get that sugar buzz going first thing in the morning, get some coffee and get your bloody work done while the kids are still asleep. Um, Don't do the McKinney way. Number one tip. Okay. Um, Number two tip um, is read a lot in the genre you're writing in. Um, I, I do a couple of writers. Where I do, you know, at the Brisbane Writers Festival, or the Sydney Writers Festival. I always do workshops. I really enjoy it. I, I love reading people's manuscripts. But, it, you know, it's with a sense of dismay that you read a manuscript. And clearly the people are, you know, not always, but sometimes you'll read this manuscript where somebody doesn't understand the conventions of the genre. So if they're writing science fiction, they haven't read a lot of science fiction novels. Uh, That's a mistake. And if you're writing crime fiction, you need to have read a lot of crime fiction novels. If you're reading fantasy fiction, you need to read a lot of fantasy fiction novels. And especially classic fantasy, classic crime, and classic science fiction or whatever, or classic literary fiction, but also what the current leading lights in the genre are doing mm. like stuff from the last two or three years so you know if, if you're reading if you're writing a crime fiction story you really need to know what the people on top of their game are up to so you need to read a james elroy you need to read a val mcdermott you need to read you know w- what the top names in, in in the genre you need to read a michael robotham you need to read those people mm. to know what the, the the people at the top of their game are turning out um, so that you can avoid some of the pitfalls. Um, I guess the third thing is just be truthful. I mean, obviously you're writing a made-up story. It's crime fiction, so it's probably going to be something that maybe didn't happen to you. Um, but be as truthful as you can, especially emotionally truthful. Um, if you're emotionally true with these characters in this situation and with these people, that will get communicated through to the reader and the reader will know that you're not trying to pull the wool over their eyes. You're being true to the situation and to the characters and to the emotions. And I think that's really important. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really entertaining and enlightening. I'm very worried about Sean Duffy's future. Um, if you haven't read, uh, haven't met Sean Duffy yet, I really recommend the series. And um, thank you so much for your time, Adrian. Thank you so much for having me, Alison. That was great, Al. Yes, it's very funny. As you could hear, we had a great laugh and um, he had some really interesting things to say. And one of the things I found most interesting about it was, you know, him saying that he wrote the Sean Duffy series and people were like, nobody's going to want to buy a book that's set in Northern Ireland Mm. Um, and as I said in the 80s and as I said like it it is actually one of the winning things of the entire series for me is that is that setting and I think it has proven to be so Mm. with um, a lot of people so I guess the message in that is you know write the book that you feel you need to write and 
you know, they will come. Yeah, hopefully. I think it's interesting, especially <laughs> with books that are like um, thrillers and spies and, you know, that sort of thing where there's a lot of detective work involved. Um, it's interesting that if you set things kind of in modern day times, sometimes for you to be really clear about the technological capabilities or, or of of certain modes of investigation, it can be quite difficult. Whereas if you're frozen in a period in time, you can be clear, oh, they would know mobile phones then or That's you couldn't exactly have right. forensic DNA evidence yep. then or whatever. Yep. You know exactly where you are. Yeah, so um, set in modern day, it's a bit more confusing. Yeah, and I mean, like one of the details that, I mean, there's a lot of detail in in the settings because uh, Adrian did grow up in the area. But, you know, every time Sean Duffy leaves his house, he checks under his car for a mercury tilt bomb every mm. single time because, you know, living in Northern Ireland in that time with the IRA active, et cetera, it was, you know, and him being a, a policeman, well, it was what he had to do. Mm. So it's just an interesting, like the detail is, is great. I, I really, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Anywho... Let's move on to our Let us app move on. pick for the week. And what do we got? Well, surprisingly, it's me that has the app yeah. pick. Oh, my goodness. I'm Quick keen sound to sound an alarm. Let's have a parade. <laughs> I have to say, though, that it's actually not mine. Um, <laughs> it was emailed to me by Renee Mahuka, who has sent me through an email saying, I thought that you might find this, your readers might find it, listeners really, might find this interesting for the podcast. Um, and she, it's an, it's an app called Choices and the Sun Went Out. And she says, you know, is this the future for stories and writers? Mm. It's basically an interactive book that updates weekly and you choose what happens, sort of like an ongoing adult choose your own adventure. Wow. So if you like the idea of, well, for starters, you know, maybe it is something that um, if you are an author, it might be something you would like to look at for doing yourself. Mm. Um, subscriptions to this particular app, you know, you can subscribe quarterly, uh, monthly or half yearly and you receive an, a weekly update to the story. Um, so, you know, is it, it, as a way forward for as a way to get your work out there, it's a really interesting looking idea um, or perhaps you're a reader who simply likes the idea of getting a chapter a week. Um, but, yeah, so the, the app is called Choices and the Sun Went Out. Uh, it's available on iTunes and, you know, it sounds really, really interesting. If anybody has actually tried it, um, I mean, obviously Renee has because she's she's uh, emailed it into us. Um, then you know, let us know what you think. Yeah, let us know. We'll put the link in the show notes. We will. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Al, what are you going to be doing before we chat again? Uh, well, I will be obviously editing because that's clearly what I'm doing at the moment. Um, I, oh, I'm actually starting writing a new course for the Australian Writers' Centre and we'll, I'll have some more details of that in yes. weeks to come. And I will be uh, taking photos of Procrastipup on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I'll be eating banoffee pie soon. But I, somehow, yeah, I hope you will too. I don't know. It's, it's touch and go, but I, I might get it in before we next speak. You have to focus on one, Valerie. I know, I do, I do. I just really suffer from that bright, shiny object syndrome. Mm, yes, it's not good. But mm. where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at Alison Tate, which is, oh, sorry, alisontate.com, which is my website. <laughs> you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. 
Awesome. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo on Instagram and Twitter. I'm easy to find on Facebook if you search for Valerie Koo. And I'm mucking around with Snapchat and I am the Valerie Koo on Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It makes, makes you sound so important. Yeah, that's right. Because Valerie Goo was taken. <clears throat> but thanks for listening, everyone. We look forward to chatting to you next week. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>